Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Story of Job. A personal disaster reveals genuine faith. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 25th, 2009. In church a few years ago, a nurse who had worked for 25 years as an intensive care specialist described her daily responsibilities on the boundary line between life and death. Marcia joked that when she started nursing right out of college as a 21-year-old, it never occurred to her that people died in the ICU. Her naivete was short-lived. When a patient dies, Marcia unplugs the monitors, disconnects the IV, removes the tangle of wires and tubes from the person, changes the bed linens one last time, and then washes the body before the family comes to view their loved one. After the family leaves, she then pulls a plastic sheet over the corpse and bags the body for final removal. It's a grim task in a sacred moment that even today she finds disconcerting. 25 years in the ICU has made Marcia an astute observer of human nature. Many terminally ill patients and their families, she says, negotiate the passage from life to death with grace, confidence, equanimity, and a strong faith in God their Redeemer. Others, though, become unglued. For them, the specter of death provokes feelings of bitterness, fear, denial, and hopelessness. Marsh's observations have made me wonder. When forces like death press us beyond our control, push us to the extremes of human helplessness, what happens to the faith we believe? And to our faith with which we believe. When fires purge our faith of all dross, what remains? That, in short, is the lesson of the book of Job. The patience of Job has passed into our vernacular as a common proverb, but I've never understood why. Between the prologue of Job and the epilogue, most of this ancient story is an acrimonious debate between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They insist that Job deserves his misfortune, and therefore he needs to repent. But Job protests his innocence. He complains, despairs, doubts, questions, anguishes, and resigns himself to his mysterious fate. He's anything but patient in the normal sense of that word. Nor does the book of Job deal directly with broad and important philosophical questions, like why the wicked prosper, why God sometimes feels silent and hidden, or why the moral calculus in our world sometimes does not seem to add up. Rather, the book of Job explores a very specific question about the relationship between piety and prosperity. 
Although Job never learns the origin or purpose of his ordeal, the writer-narrator informs us as the readers. In this story, Satan comes before God with a provocative question in chapter 1, verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? He insinuates that Job's faith has ulterior motives. Doesn't Job expect a quid pro quo of some sort? Some divine blessings for human faith or human faithfulness? The accuser adversary, for such is the literal meaning of his name in Hebrew, then makes a wager with God. He bets that he can prove that for Job, an immensely wealthy man with a wonderful family, God is nothing more than a cosmic sugar daddy. His faith in God is fueled by its benefits, in other words. God, charges Satan, is really no more than a rabbit's foot or a good luck charm to Job. Test him and try him. Squeeze him, Satan wagers, and you'll see that Job's faith is opportunistic and egocentric rather than gratuitous and theocentric. God accepts Satan's wager and permits Job to be, as the words in chapter 2, verse 3 say, ruined without reason. A first wave of disaster decimates Job's extravagant wealth and kills his ten children. Then Satan ravages Job's health with festering boils from head to foot. To say that life hands him a dramatic reversal would be a gross understatement. But despite his impatience, his agonizing questions, and emotional outbursts, Job passes the tests with flying colors at each stage of the drama. Before his fiasco began, we read that Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil, chapter 1, verse 1. In the middle of the crisis, and contrary to what we might naturally think, the narrator insists that in all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He did not sin in what he said, chapter 1, 22, and chapter 2, verse 10. Though ruined without reason, God himself tells Satan that Job maintained his integrity, chapter 2, verse 3. And then after the fiasco, the epilogue ends with another reversal of a different sort. Whereas at the beginning of the story, Job sought the help of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, at the end of the story, God commands them to seek Job's prayers in intercession. They had wrongly charged Job with brash impiety, but God rightly charged them with folly. In the words of chapter 42, 7, at the end of the story, They have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. The story of Job contains so many important lessons. In the New Testament, James commends Job for his perseverance, James 5.11. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar warn us of the dangers of trying to help 
or fix our friends when they suffer, despite our best intentions. Even though he wore his heart on his sleeve and fully vented his emotions, God affirmed that Job spoke rightly, which is a reminder that there's no need to sanitize your feelings before God. Job also teaches that we should not make a direct or necessary connection between rewards and punishment in this life with a person's sin or their righteousness. Encountering the majesty and mystery of God, Job confessed that he, quote, surely spoke of things I did not understand, 42 verse 3. And it was precisely this admission of ignorance and his embrace of modesty that led him from second-hand knowledge about God to a direct and personal experience with God. As Job says in 42 verse 5, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. In addition to all of these, though, the primary lesson of this ancient story includes a most contemporary application. Many television preachers and books teach that God wants us healthy, wealthy, and wise, if you send them your money. Job categorically exposes this lie for the self-serving idolatry that it is. In his book, Forty Acres and a Goat, Will Campbell derides such teachers as, quote, electronic soul molesters, end quote. Genuine faith does not manipulate God for material gain, for fear of punishment, or for avoidance of unjust suffering. I've always appreciated how the Lutherans of the Reformation made this point. They distinguish between earthly security, which is a presumption that no one should expect as an entitlement or some reward for faith, and on the other hand, certitude, the unfailing promise of God's presence, whatever comes my way. And now for further reflection. Have you ever used faith to try to gain material advantage? How and why? How and why do life's hardships reveal our faith for what it really is? Which of the many lessons from Job speak to you most clearly and why? Do you find the Lutheran distinction between security and certainty helpful? And finally, of the many books about the book of Job, see Gustavo Gutierrez on Job, God Talk and the Suffering of the Innocent. For books this week, I review George Friedman, The Next Hundred Years, a forecast for the 21st century. New York, Doubleday, 2009, 253 pages. George Friedman admits that he doesn't possess any clairvoyant powers, nor is common sense a reliable guide to forecasting the future, especially when you recall the last hundred years of history 
and what sort of future people back then imagined for us today. But you don't need a crystal ball, he says, to identify the major tendencies, geopolitical, technological, demographic, cultural, and military, in their broadest sense, and to define the major events that just might take place in the next hundred years. Some of Friedman's predictions are broad and bland. For example, quote, productivity gains from robotics and the surge in healthcare opportunities presented by genetic science will fuel growth. Conversely, the more detailed you get, the more likely you might be wrong. But Friedman's book does not lack a coherent narrative. He says that we're now far along in what he calls the American age. And one point about which he is most insistent is that the United States has barely begun its ascent in hegemony. Far from decline, the next hundred years will witness America's unrivaled dominance as the primary actor on the world stage. And here's another surprise. Contrary to many pundits, Friedman believes that both China and Russia will collapse and crumble in the coming century. In the vacuum they create will rise Japan, Turkey, Poland, and, in a whole different matter, Mexico, all as various rivals to America. The single biggest factor driving these changes, said Friedman, is the end of the population explosion and a decline in available labor. Nations that have long resisted immigration will beg foreigners to come to their lands, an ironic but inevitable shift when it comes to Mexican-American relations. It's easy to take exception with some of Friedman's extreme assertions, like his opinion that both the Vietnam War and the war in Iraq are inconsequential skirmishes or his extrapolations about declining birth rates, or, interestingly, that the Islamic world will not constitute a major geopolitical fault line in the future. Africa is never mentioned in the book, except for Egypt, and Latin America barely gets a passing nod. And on the last page, he admits that he's neglected global warming, I wonder, will Korea really unite before the year 2030? The militarization of space, space, which he describes, sounds futuristic, inevitable, and deeply ominous. One interesting aspect of Friedman's analysis is that he does not mention one single political or government leader. I find it especially depressing that the underlying premise of the book is that human history unfolds as a zero-sum conflict. <clears throat> Nations in general, and the United States in particular, says Friedman, are warlike. Quote, war is central to the American experience. It is built into American culture and deeply rooted in American geopolitics. Can we not hope pray, and work for a far different future. George Friedman, 
the next hundred years. For film this week, I review a Mexican film called Sin Nombre from the year 2009. The first and last minutes of this film about immigration feature Willie and Smiley, members of a ruthlessly violent gang in southern Mexico. Their character development across the course of the film results in total role reversals. The tipping point comes when their gang robs hundreds of migrants who have trudged from Honduras through Guatemala and then hopped a freight train in southern Mexico bound for the U.S. border. These vulnerable and illegal immigrants face every obstacle imaginable as they chase their dream for a better life. When Willie encounters the Honduran teenage girl Sarah on the top of a boxcar, both of their lives change forever for both good and ill. Director Kerry Fukunaga has made a film that is deeply moral and not at all political. When the story ends on the banks of the muddy Rio Grande, we know that the lives of Willie, Smiley, and Sarah represent the many thousands of human beings who are trapped in the vortex of poverty and violence. These are people who remain sin nombre, literally without name or nameless. To most of history. I like the words of one reviewer about this film. This movie will break viewers' hearts and raise their social consciousness. The name of the movie, Sin Nombre. <clears throat> and finally for this week, we've posted a poem by Clarabelle Allegria. Allegria was born in 1924 to Nicaraguan and Salvadorian parents. She moved to the United States in 1943, graduating from George Washington University. In 1985, she moved back to Nicaragua. Her work was featured in Bill Moyer's PBS series, The Language of Life. Her 40 books of poems, fiction, nonfiction, and children's stories have been translated into more than 10 languages. Clarabelle Allegria, the title of the poem, From the Bridge. I never found the order I searched for, but always a sinister and well-planned disorder that increases in the hands of those who hold power, while the others who clamor for a more kindly world, a world with less hunger and more hopefulness, die of torture in the prisons. Don't come any closer. There's a stench of carrion surrounding me. From the Bridge by Clarabelle Allegria. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 25th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.